Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, July the 18th, 2023. Uh, Tuesdays, of course, in the publishing business being New Books Day. Yesterday, we talked to um, the author of a new book on how the internet has become an outrage machine. Uh, Tobias Rose Stockwell has a new book out, um, Outrage Machine, How Tech Amplifies Discontent, Disrupts Democracy, and What We Can Do About It. In particular, uh, Tobias Stockwell, uh, Tobias Rose Stockwell is concerned with how we reconstruct our attention. He sees a crisis of attention. He's not the first or the last to think in those terms. Indeed, my guest today has a new book out too. It's a Tuesday. Look, how to pay attention in a distracted world. Another book about the crisis of attention. Uh, Christian uh, Mespier uh, was a former academic at the New School uh, in New York, and he now is an entrepreneur, an investor, General Troublemaker. Christian, congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. I like Tobias's book. Uh, I've heard about it for a while. It's a, he's a thoughtful guy. Yeah, and he, he his book and your book are obviously focused in some ways on, on the same thing. Um, this crisis of attention, or, or, or Christian, would you call it a, a crisis of attention? Uh, your book, the subtitle is how to pay attention in a distracted world is, is there a, dis, a crisis of distraction these days? Um, I think there's certainly a crisis of abstraction that um, if we get too far away from dealing with and observing the world directly, if we have too many layers between us and the world, then we end up being um, leading kind of hollow, unpleasant lives. So what I try to describe in my book is how not to do that and tools with which uh, we could get better at paying attention. So mine is less sort of worried about a crisis and more worried about tools help that would be helpful in order to be really good at paying attention. Yeah, it's interesting that you, you talk about, if not a crisis, certainly the problem of abstraction. What, what do you mean by that? Is that that we, I mean, your background is also as a philosopher in the Continental School, which uh, some people think is a little too abstract. Is abstraction a bad thing or certain kinds of abstraction, Christian? Um, Yes. So abstraction is, of course, not bad. I mean, mathematics is a very helpful discipline and we wouldn't understand much about planets or bacteria without some sort of theoretical relationship to the world. But I think if that's how you lead your life alone, I think you, you have a problem. And the thing I'm mostly worried about is, of course, because I've been dealing with big companies my whole life, my whole work life, is that if an automaker or someone that makes food doesn't relate to people using vehicles to get around or food systems and how we eat, if, they, if we have an abstract relationship to that and everything ends up being numbers or um, abstract structures like that, we lose touch with what's important and we 
I don't think it's very good for us to do that. You're also, as you mentioned, um, you have a long history in the business world. You were the co-founder or you are the co-founder of a, an international consultancy called Red Consulting. Is consultancy the problem or the answer? Uh, are, are international consultants like the people who work at Red Consulting or McKinsey, are they, are they compounding the abstraction of, of our contemporary age or are they fighting abstraction? I, I would say that there's too much abstraction in that world, that it seems like it doesn't really matter uh, what you're working on. You can sort of just float between many things without really having a relationship to the, to the fundamental substance of it and the fundamental lives of people that we're serving. And I think the, I mean, the, the consulting world have taken over areas, particularly of the government, where uh, maybe there shouldn't be as many. Um, and where you hollow out the skills of the people working there. So I think consultants can be very good. Uh, it's a speciality you bring, and it's not something that everybody wants to have on staff all the time. So it's a flexible thing. You can get really deep. Um, you can get really deep skills related to it. But if you rely on it too much, you end up having a uh, you end up having consultants between you and the world. And I, I don't think that's very good. Christian, my old friend uh, Nick Carr wrote a book um, a few years ago, which was a, a huge bestseller on how the internet was undermining our ability to read books, undermining our ability to pay attention. Um, how, how and, and it created a great debate, which is still going on, certainly the role of social media and the internet. And, our smartphones are, are central to the what some people see as the crisis of attention. In your view, is the internet contributing to this crisis of abstraction in our in the twenty twenties in our digital age, where we all stare at our smartphones all day? Uh, absolutely, I, of course. I mean, it it makes um, many things possible. But I'll give you an example of how bad it can be. So I was teaching the same class for 10 years, around 10 years, on observation and human direct observation. And it was very much in context, in person, long-term focus on a particular topic. And then uh, everybody started teaching on the screen and talking to each other on the screen and trying to teach on the screen. And you would just see the students fall apart. Right? It wasn't effective, it wasn't fun, and they were miserable. And I think it's because you then establish a layer between students and teachers and each other in particular that is completely destructive to learning and to well-being. So, so you can use these technologies for very good things, and, and that abstraction is fine, but uh, I think we're using it to an extent that is just absurdly stupid. Like thinking that you can work from home all the time and never have any interaction with your, with your colleagues is, is for me, just I don't understand it. So, so I think we're learning how to deal with these technologies in a way that is helpful, but certainly we're making mistakes now that are, that are disastrous um, to our work and, and our lives. 
you talk about this layer between us and the world. You you have a background in philosophy too. Um, in your bio, you talk about being influenced by 20th century continental philosophy, particularly the work of Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty. Are you, and, and excuse, um, excuse this phrase, correct me if I'm wrong, are you a phenomenologist? Are you bringing continental European philosophy to this show, trying to get, if not us, to read Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty, at least understand them, to, to do away with this, um, this, this, our inability to actually confront the world itself? Yes, full stop. Yes, it's the, the new book um, is about Maurice Meloponti and it's written in a way where there are examples and there are ways of describing his um, absurdly abstract and tortured writing. It's really difficult to read, um, but, but it is deep and, and, and very, very human. So I try to describe uh, his book called The Phenomenology of Perception in a way that normal people can read. And when I talked to my philosophy friends and colleagues and I told them I want to do that, they said, good luck, <laughs> good luck with that. But, um, but it's a go I, you know, I had a crack at it. And what his, his philosophy is deeply embodied, the idea that it's actually important that we have bodies and we experience and perceive the world with our bodies rather than just as direct sensory inputs that are intellectually processed like a machine would do it. Um, it's quite important that we, that we um, in, in terms of how we pay attention, that paying attention with our, our bodies in space uh, is, is of very low frequency, of very low quality and I try to bring that, you know, the previous book that I wrote called Sensemaking is basically a book about Martin Heidegger and his con concepts of worlds uh, and what a, how humans have structure our experience in worlds. So the world of theater, the world of podcasting, or the world of phenomenology. And it has a particular structure and you can use that to observe and to study. Um, so every book I'm writing, I'm trying to take a really hairy um, uh, philosopher that usually takes a lot of work to get into and then describe it, you know, in a light and sort of example rich texture. Um, and people seem to understand some of it. And uh, my students certainly, I tested many of these things on my students and um, they bring it with them. They, they become phenomenologists and use it in wherever they end up working um, or living. So you, 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 you suggested that you're importing the ideas of Merleau-Ponty into this book, believing that um, he can help us pay attention in a distracted world. You talked about this idea of embodiment. You also suggested it's a rather abstract, difficult notion. What exactly does it mean, mm. embodiment? I, I mean, the, the, the return, if you like, to the body, to the physical. Uh, it sounds, on the one hand, very straightforward, kind of obvious on the other hand a bit vague right well the body's not vague the body's the body but but i would imagine maybe give an example uh if you walk down 13th street where i live in new can, york city in right? new york city yeah you can you can walk down the street and 
orientate yourself in the street with your body without any thought. You just know how that place works. You know that that's a fire truck and that's a school and that's a delivery um, uh, bike and so on. And that you sort of have a, a general, quite embodied glaze of attention where you see everything and nothing at the same time. And that is, has, there's nothing intellectual about it. You don't process anything through language. It's preconceptual. You don't have the concept of a fire truck. You, you're just in the midst of it. And, and bodies being in the midst of life rather than intellectual subjects trying to interpret life um, is quite different view of what perception is and how, how people pay attention. So there's this sort of ground level of panoptic, general uh, attention that human bodies do. And do, do it without much reflection. So attention and intellectual process is not necessarily the same. Um, and then we have this other type of attention that you could call focus, right? And that's what everybody talks about and wants. And when you ask your children, you know, pay attention. It's that kind of attention we want. And we can do that in the street. So imagine you walk down the street. You can uh, look at a fire truck and figure out which exact Pantone color is it. Or um, you can look at a sweater and say, you know, which, which, which brand is it or something like that. So you can sort of focus your attention and let everything else disappear. And that's another way. That's what science is based on. And we can certainly do that. But I just think the first type of attention, the panoptic one, is unsung. It is amazing that we can do that, that we can find our way around in the world, we can drive, we can walk, we can experience each other, we can orient ourselves without really intellectualizing and without really focusing. And when you look at that, and that's maybe the third order or the second order in this case, you can look at how people look at the world. Um, so what I try to say in the, in the book is to try to explain to people, uh, try to make people see themselves seeing. And so how they themselves experience the world. And if you do that, you can also see how others see. Um, and in, that, in the book, I call that hyper-reflection. So, in a way, yeah, in a way, it's what you're trying to do. And in a way, it's a contradiction in terms, but it's very seductive, is return us to intuition. You're suggesting that, we need to learn how to walk in the streets, which we do, as you suggested, in intuitively. We don't bump into things or people. We don't walk through holes. Uh, but you're suggesting that in our mental lives, we are doing that. Um, you mentioned Heidegger earlier. His, one of his girlfriends, I'm not sure how many girlfriends he had, was, uh, of course, Hannah Arendt. Um, and she always said that she, in the afternoon, liked to lie on a couch and think. Is that something that we can do, Christian? Or is a rent in a sort of classically German snobbish way telling everyone that they can't really think unless they're Hannah Arendt or Martin Heidegger, for that matter? Well, she could certainly think. But did she need um, to lie on a settee in New York? She could probably think. I, I'm not sure if she'd fall down holes on 13th Street. Right, right. She taught at the and New School too, didn't she? She did, down the street. She was, um, yeah, she grew up like two blocks away, something like that. Um, and she was, of course, she was um, one of the great phenomenologists and, uh, and great thinkers. But she 
I mean, she said she could think, yes, of course, humans can do that. We can focus, we can think analytically about things, and uh, that's fantastic, and I enjoy doing that. But that's not necessarily the only kind of attention. Uh, another type of attention is this magical ability to find our ways around things and know mm. holes. So, for instance, a school. If you if you drive down again, let's say we drive down 13th Street. Which way, left, uh, east, or west? You go, you go west. Let's say you go. It's a one-way street, isn't it? So I guess you don't have. Well, if you're driving, you don't have. Exactly, you'd have to go. So, so you 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 pass a school. There's a school down there. We humans, we don't need to take in all the data points and then add it up to school. We just see school, and we know exactly what that means. We know the rhythm of it. We know the time of the day that there's different behavior around it. We know that if there's a swarm of children, we know how to interact with it and when to be careful. And we know what's going on. We know it has a world of teachers and whiteboards and books and uh, parents and so on. And that whole world we see immediately, uh, which means that when we, we're quite effective in processing data compared to a machine, let's say a driverless car going down that street, it would have to take in so much information in order to get to even close to our ability to predict what will happen. But so a New that, Yorker, Christian, walking down, you know, you put someone from the Midwest on 13th Street, they would be nervous, they would be looking around, they always might think they're on the brink of being robbed. This intuition requires practice. It's a lifelong, it's a consequence of being on 13th Street, isn't it? Correct, yes. We, it, it's even, I mean, if you think about driving again, different places have different styles of driving. Like the rules are the same. There's a, like, there's a stop by red lights and so on. And those, are, those rules are sort of general and you can write them down. But if you see the style of driving in Los Angeles or in um, Dallas or in New York, the difference in style is quite subtle but very precise. And you're told exactly what you do wrong if you do something wrong. So the distance between two cars in, let's say, Dallas is the distance between two cars. People are pretty loose about that. If you, if in, in New York, it's annoying if people don't, if people don't close that gap. And so it's, it's kind of in the style. And in Dallas, if you, if, you, if you close the gap, you'll probably get shot, right? Probably, yeah. You'll get in real trouble. So, so... So the style of a place we adopt to, um, the, the general rules are the same, but the style of a place sort of gets to us. And we start acting in the way of the style of the place we live. And I'm interested in studying that. And so I'm interested in seeing how does that happen? How does it do, you know, how does it do that to us? And how does that whole sort of panoptic attention type way of finding a way around the world work um you, you meant you keep on mentioning this word panoptic I, i think it was a word invented by jeremy bentham to describe his panopticon which was in his mind at least a prison or a a school which imagined that in which he wanted to everyone to imagine they're being watched all the time which was a, a form of, of discipline michel foucault of course writes about this um Is this what you mean by panoptic, the idea that we're always being watched? No, definitely not. 
um, that is a that's a different definition and very relevant. And I, for, for Michel Foucault, it is that we are always watched, watched by structures or by systems, or in, in his case, by the state. Um, but but by panoptic, I mean almost all seeing without focus. Like it's the experience. It's a very basic everyday experience of walking down the street and knowing exactly what's going on without focusing on anything in particular. But it requires, it's, it's a fascinating idea, but it, and it seems natural, but I think as you're suggesting, it requires enormous amounts of experience to have this intuition. So the people you cite in your book as masters of attention, people who have got beyond distraction are people like Gillian Tett, very distinguished journalist, Ernesto Laclau, very distinguished political philosopher, Robert Carreau, a very distinguished uh, a biographer, American biographer, political biographer. So I intuition requires huge practice. Is there a kind of Gladwellian element here, Christian? Do we need two or three or 5,000 hours to, 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 to intuit, to be able to walk down the street? Um. No, I, th I think we quite quickly can, if you move from Dallas to Los Angeles, you quite quickly adopt to it. I'm trying to say you can observe it, that you can observe how that works. Um, so I can give an example. Uh, if, you, if you go to a jazz club and it is um, jam session night, uh, you can just listen to it and enjoy it and be part of it which is what panoptic attention would be. It is just being immersed in the situation. You're not focusing on, on anything in particular. You're just enjoying the entirety of it. But you can also go and observe how musicians relate to each other and how they try to be seen, how a drummer would really like to be seen for what that drummer is good at for the other parts of the, the, the group. So that you can you can observe the dance or the dynamic there is among a series of musicians that are competing and having to play with each other. So that is a that's like walking down the street. It's a very everyday experience to see music being created. You can at least have that in your life. And but if you have a particular way of observing it, you can look at what is it like to be seen. What's the the phenomenon of being seen and how this whole dynamic of jam sessions in this case, work. Um, so, so the kind of attention Gillian Ted has or Robert Caro has is that they can look at how other people are experiencing what they're in the middle of. So it's so Robert Caro, of course, is is one of our great journalists, maybe the greatest living American journalist, and certainly one of the best writers. And he he describes the entire life of Robert, let's say Johnson, the pres President Johnson, through understanding it in, on his terms by getting into his shoes and understanding the structure of his life and how that world made sense to him. Um, so there's panoptic attention, there's focus, and then there's hyper-reflection, where hyper-reflection is how does panoptic attention work? Like, what is it that makes this place uh, uh, make sense to people and show up as meaningful to people. And I highlight these people because they're just extraordinary and at, at doing exactly that. 
great, there's a great debate, Christian. I'm not sure how much of a debate, but a lot of controversy about multitasking uh, and, and, and how that's undermining our ability to focus, to pay attention. What would uh, your friend uh, Maurice uh, Merleau-Ponty tell us about the idea of multitasking, of looking at our phone and writing an essay and ordering stuff online simultaneously? Can we do that? Is it rather like chewing gum and walking down the street, or do we need the focus of walking down the street? Right. Well, he he's a philosopher, so he's interested in... in extremely basic questions or sophisticated but basic questions like what is perception or what is attention how does attention work um so i don't know if he would have any opinions about whether you should have several browsers open at the same time but i think what he would say might be we can do it like it's it's observable that humans can be involved in so many things at the same time you know we can cook and be at a birthday party and talk about work and think about what to do tomorrow all at the same time. So humans have this extraordinary ability really to process enormous amounts of information. Is it good for us to always have many browsers opening at the same time? I I don't think so. Um, Does it mean we have to meditate all day? No, I I think what, what, what he's trying to say is just describe what it is, describe how attention and perception works. And maybe see, show us how um, how how magical it is compared to. I mean, today we would say compared to robots, compared to software, compared to you know machines. Um, humans are, um, if you if you follow Meliponti's perspective, embodied humans in worlds that they fundamentally understand and experience as meaningful not as abstract data points. What's the politics of all this, Christian? Uh, This notion of embodiment, I have to admit, I still find it rather abstract, but maybe I'm just not a great fan of continental philosophy. Heidegger, (laughs) of course, is the father of all this. Right. Heidegger, everyone acknowledges, was a very profound thinker, but he was also a Nazi sympathizer um, whose moral history is profoundly dubious. Um, The notion of paying attention, uh, Arendt, of course, paid attention politically. Uh, What what is the the politics of this, particularly in a world in which we seem to be slipping and sliding back into some sort of authoritarian political structure? Hmm. Well, Heidegger was not just a sympathizer. He was a Nazi. He was a card-carrying member. Um, And he never said he was sorry about it in his life, even though he had many chances. So um, that is despicable and completely confusing to me in many ways. He is nonetheless the most interesting and important thinker of the 20th century. Um, and certainly, and I think anything that happens in philosophy. You mean a philosopher, right? As a philosopher, yeah. And and he, I think he, anything that happens in philosophy, modern philosophy today, is either building on or arguing against ideas he had. Um, at least that's that's how I see it. The politics of, of relating to a Nazi is either you can separate the man and the work or you can't. And if you can't, then you've got to, we've got to get rid of the books. Um, I think you can. Um, 
the relationship to po what's the politics of this. I am not offering any political opinion. I don't have many, actually. Um, I offer that people, instead of having opinions, and instead of judging things immediately through the mechanism or the filter of your opinions, you look first. So when my students have come in, quite often I had to do what we call the great excavation, like take away all the preconceived notions, all the presuppositions, all the uh, mechanical strong opinions about some topic and just look. And I try to, in the book, I try to give tools with which you can study political change, you can study culture, you can study organizations, you can study different social phenomena. And I think if you do that, if you study social phenomena without opinion, as long as you can, as well as you can, you will find it undermining to prejudice. You'll find that your, your assumptions about, uh, about uh, something or other, your, your assumptions about uh, people living in the Midwest or people living in Italy or in China, if you actually observe, you would find that the prejudices you have against someone or something or the conclusions you have uh, will often be undermined. Uh, so I think political opinion and, and opinion is undermining to observation and observation is undermining to prejudice. So I think it's a key skill for us to understand each other better. I think if we need to stop disagreeing and hating each other about so many things, I think observation is a good place to start, to look and listen at each other. So I don't have a particular political opinion with this other than I think the tool of observation would iron out many of our differences and show a lot of our common humanity. Uh, we talked to one of that's been one of the big themes on our show. Um, it seems to be almost a, a monastic quality to this, Christian. You, you seem to be suggesting that we can transform the world into a monastic cell and, and, and focus. Um, you're originally Danish. Obviously, the most famous Danish philosopher is Kierkegaard. Who has most influenced you in your worldview? Kierkegaard was my, my first love. Um, in philosophy, because <laughs> that's what's available. It's pretty much the only one we have where I'm from. Um, and um, because I lived in a, in a left-wing environment, I also grew up on a diet of Marx and Lenin, uh, which I don't like um, so much anymore. Uh, but, but it was really was Heidegger that changed it for me. To me, he's the all the ideas I'd studied, I studied philosophy and I studied some political science. And all the ideas, if you think of a, a tree, all the branches and all the leaves have a root and a, like a trunk and a root. And for me, that was Martin Heidegger. The whole thing just suddenly snapped into place and I understood where all the ideas came from. Um, so monastic, maybe, maybe. I'm a, you know, I'm a quiet kind of person that look and... Um, try to describe um, more than pontificating. Um, at least that's what I try to do. So there is maybe a, a quietness to, to, to this way of, of thinking and living and working. 
Yeah, the, the, the quietness is, is the monastic quality. Uh, the ability to retreat into a cell. Uh, and in a noisy world, in a distracted world, that's what everyone seeks. Um, so, so finally, Christian, I mean, this is all very well. It's all interesting and in its own way seductive. But a lot of people, they, maybe they'll read your book, maybe they won't. Um, how, how do you, how, in addition to obviously picking up the book, how do you begin this? I mean, it's very attractive and sexy in its own way. But how would you suggest people start paying mm. attention, looking, as you say? without reading Merleau-Ponty or Heidegger or even your book, how to begin this? Right. So the way we, I've done it with students is ask them to go describe something. It can be you sit under, you know, you sit somewhere in your city and you describe how people move around. You don't conclude anything, you just describe it. You can also describe nature, describe um, things that happen in nature and you record what you see and you write it down and you don't try to use your own judgment or your own sort of um, um, history you just look and if you do that you would you would start finding patterns in what you see and you'd find a vividness you would see in a kind of a colorful uh, world in front of you, even of something that is very everyday. And that can be almost like a gym. It's something you can do uh, on an ongoing basis that sharpens your skill of observing rather than judging. And then if you can do that, you can do it in your work life. You can take it to work. You can do it with friendships. Uh, you can do it with many things where you have this sort of um, care, careful, empirical, organized way of looking at something. And it's just like going to the gym. You have to run, you know, 5K and you have to, whatever you do in the gym, um, it's the same just for your attention. Um, Is it like I turning your, yourself into a, a camera? No, exactly not. Um, so a camera is receiving data from the world. It is just receiving distance, color, light, you know, and so on, onto a lens. It has no sense of meaning, right? But when you observe how a world makes sense to other people, it's a life full of meaning. Um, and I think that's what's so different from us and machines, is that our, wor our world are infused with meaning. Machines have none other. Um, so so it's, it's not like a camera. It is um, human. And we be, so in a sense, if, if we do what you say we're doing, we become, and, and I don't like to sound too Heideggerian here, but we become the world. Yes, exactly. We, we become in the midst of things rather than outside of it. And we understand how we ourselves are related to that world, which I think you can learn a lot from. So you're right, it's, it's being in the world.